Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, 23rd of January, 2024. Uh, one of the themes that we've really been following over the last few months and indeed years on the show is the unraveling of the American dream. Uh, David Leonhardt, the New York Times journalist, uh, had a new book out. We had him in October of last year. He had a book. Ours was The Shining Future, the story of the American dream, a dream that now is dying. Some people might suggest it's been replaced by a kind of nightmare. It's multifaceted, of course, and um, one of the things that we talk to Leonhard about and come out in all sorts of other conversations is the stage of that dream in the 50s and 60s and 70s. It was, of course, the American suburb, but the American suburb is changing dramatically. My guest today, Benjamin Herald, uh, has a pinned X. He wrote, uh, suburbia worked great for my white family, but a generation later, my Hometown schools were crushed by $172 million in debt, undermining the dream of thousands of black families. It may not just be black families, some white families, and of course, brown families. Uh, Harold is an education journalist based in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, and he has an important new book out on the unraveling of the nation's suburbs. It's called, appropriately enough, Disillusioned. Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. And Ben uh, is joining us from Philadelphia. The book is out today. Congratulations, Ben. Getting lots of good press. Very good review in the New York Times. Starred reviews on Kirkus and Publishers Weekly. So it's a timely book. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about it with you. So how much would you argue that, uh, you know, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth on this relationship between the death of the American dream and the crisis of the suburb? Are they uh, bound up? Are they inseparable or are they parallel development? I think, excuse me, I think they're very intertwined. We have for generations now as Americans invested so many of our hopes and dreams and visions for the future um, in the suburbs. And a lot of that is about trying to deliver a better life uh, for our children. So that's a very powerful thing, very tied up in our national mythology. Um, but what we're seeing now is, you know, I had the chance to travel the country and talk to five families in five very different suburban communities around the country. And all five of them were very much feeling like the rug was being pulled out under their feet. The dreams that brought them to suburbia were crumbling all around them and they felt stuck and like there was nowhere to go. Tell me a little bit about these um, these families you followed around, uh, some in Compton in, in California, of course, some uh, in your own neighborhood. How did you choose these suburbs and where are they? So the place I started was really trying to understand on a sociological level what was happening in suburbia and started to learn that there's this kind of cycle of development and decline that gets really racialized. So we start with you know, in America, we've started with thousands and thousands of suburban communities that were built for primarily upperly mobile middle class white families who had a few generations where they, they really excluded other people and reaped a lot of benefits from those communities, whether that was massive tax breaks, guaranteed mortgage loans, new infrastructure, good public schools. But as that all of that infrastructure, all of those opportunities, it started to age. 
um, and it needed repair and investment. And that was very expensive because these communities were built more or less overnight. So everything needed fixed at once. And instead of you know, facing those bills and reinvesting in the communities and trying to build them, what we see is that families have just kind of continually moved one rink further out. So the five communities I follow in the, in, I feature in the book really describe this arc of development and decline. So we start with a new ex-urban community going up 30, 40 miles north of Dallas, um, and then follow, trace that arc all the way through the suburbs of Atlanta, Chicago, um, Pittsburgh, and then end, as you said, in Compton, California, which is a place that we don't even really think of as a suburb anymore, but it's been through all of this cycle um, and was really devastated by it. The book, the narrative is driven by your own experience. Um, you, you write, uh, I was born in to my American dream in a suburb called Penn Hills. Tell me about Penn Hills and, and, and its significance in the narrative. It's a classic post-war suburb. So as late as the 1940s, the area east of Pittsburgh, it was kind of hilly farms and coal mines and limestone kilns, and really not, um, you know, not much residential development at all. But around the time of World War II, when the federal government decided it's gonna make this massive investment in home ownership and in trying to build a middle class, a white middle class, um, Penn Hills was one of the many, many communities that, that benefited from that. There was just incredible development, population doubled between 1940 and 50, and then doubled again uh, by 1960. And what you saw was you know, a lot of you know, small single family homes, uh, public schools, and a, a small retail residential district. And for a while, the community worked pretty good. Um, but then around 2015, the bottom really started to fall out. So when you say it worked good, it uh, worked well, uh, was that exclusively, it seems as if race is a, a central piece of your narrative. Is it just for the white families? Of course, the, the, the classic critique of 50s, 60s, 70s America was that, um, people of different skin colors, particularly blacks, were excluded from the American dream. Is that what you found in your research, that in the 50s and 60s, it was only really whites who were benefiting from suburbia? It was predominantly white families. Um, and that was by design, intentional, and often written into statute and policy. Um, federal government agencies, for example, for a long time would only guarantee loans if they were going to, to white families. Um, those kinds of issues uh, were baked into a lot of these communities. And you can see it in zoning codes, racially restrictive covenants. Now, it's a big country and a lot of people. And so there is some variation. Penn Hills has actually always had a small um, but very uh, kind of tight-knit um, upwardly mobile black community. Um, but what we saw was in the 80s and 90s in particular, when the community was really starting to age and it became apparent that this kind of social contract that it had delivered for its first few generations was no longer going to be possible because the costs of repair and renewal were so high. Many of the whiter, more affluent families led, fled, which led um, more uh, black and lower income families to move in. And so those families kind of came in, you know, this is a slow process. It plays out over a long time. So it's not like you see it in a snapshot. So many of those families moved into Penn Hills and other communities like it, thinking and expecting that they were going to get that same suburban dream, that same generous social contract, only to kind of find out that in fact, they were left stuck paying the bills for the opportunities that other families had already extracted. But no one has the right to the dream, even if, even if it did exist, a lot of people would argue it, it never really existed. Are you suggesting that there should be some sort of uh, right to, to, to this dream? Um, and are you arguing that there's some sort of uh, uh, 
under uh, uh, invisible racial narrative here that it was good for the whites and then when the blacks moved in uh it was transformed because america or whites or government officials or schools didn't want upwardly mobile uh people of different skin well, I think if you go back to the American dreams that suburbia was built on, I mean, in many ways, they're foundational to the American creed. Everyone is created equal. We all have a we all get a fair shot. Success is determined by merit. But what we know from American history through each era of history is that's never that promise has never been equally extended to people of all races and backgrounds. And suburbia reflected that the promise was made most fully, most completely and most widely to upwardly mobile middle class white families in those first few generations after World War Two. Um, and what we see now is that as the you know the fight to open up suburbia, open its schools, um, make sure that opportunity is available to more people, it kind of fueled this cycle of let's just run away from the problems, run away from the tensions. And as a result, a lot of the the kind of underlying um, parts of a community, from its zoning code to its infrastructure, that really were based initially around racial exclusion, it's very tough to change those on the fly because. One, it's hard to change the system, and two, there's often a lot of political resistance. Progressives, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, Ben, for better or worse, you're a progressive, certainly a man on the left rather than on the right, have always been ambivalent about suburbs. On the one hand, I think they would probably recognize, like you, that these are vehicles for some degree of equality and mobility, social mobility. Uh, but on the other hand, they've always been very critical culturally of suburbs. You quote Lewis Mumford, of course, one of suburbia's great critics. Uh, you can think of people like Jane Jacobs as well. Uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, progressives didn't like suburbs because they thought it bred uniformity, orthodoxy. Were they right? I think uh, whether they were right in the past, uh, it's clear that they're they're not right now. So our suburbs are incredibly diverse now, racially, economically, and otherwise, linguistically, you name it. And so one of the, the kind of factoids that has just stuck with me from my reporting is that inside America's suburban public schools, white children are already a minority. So this idea of a kind of being a, a place of uh, uniformity and homogeneity um, was never fully accurate, and it's definitely not accurate now. But part of what I saw in my reporting was, you know, the families that I followed in these five different communities came from a wide variety of different backgrounds, and that's racially and ethnically, um, economically, but also politically and culturally. And so one of the families that I followed is a conservative white family who lives north of Dallas. Um, and what was really eye-opening for me was to see how they ended this process, you know, around 2021, 2022, of feeling like, oh, wait, the dream that we have for suburbia, the things that we hope to get from suburbia is no longer possible for us either. So I don't think this kind of reckoning with the, the problems inherent in suburbia is unique to any one particular political viewpoint. Ben, can, can one think about the suburbs without thinking about the spaces on each side of the suburb? On the one hand, the inner city or downtown, I'm talking to you from downtown San Francisco, which seems to epitomize a, 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 an interrelated crisis of inequality in America. And then, of course, the countryside. Have, has the countryside and, 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 and the inner city, have they, have they changed in the same way as the suburb has changed? Or have the wealthy simply fled downtown or perhaps to their 
homes, their gated communities in the countryside? Well, I think what we've seen is that for a long time, you know, several cycles of communities' lifespan, generations now, that there's always been this notion that there's open countryside out further out from downtown that we can move to when we want to start over. And that idea, that impulse is very American. It goes back to the very beginning days of uh, the American experiment. But what we see now is that we're kind of running out of space. Um, and that's for economic reasons. It's for environmental reasons. It's for population reasons. Um, and so you do see this kind of idea of, wait, we can't just keep moving further out and trying to restart the same cycle somewhere new. So we do see some of the whiter and more affluent families who once may have you know, chosen to go out to the countryside, now going back into central cities um, and gentrifying them. And that's partly what's driving the diversification of suburbia. So families of color who were once you know, excluded from suburbia now find that that's the most affordable, accessible option. I spent the weekend and, and late last week in uh, Mississippi and um, Louisiana. And it, it seems to be as if most of America, for better or worse, is, is suburbia. How does it break down, Ben? What percentage? And I know it's a, a term that perhaps can mean different things to different people. But do more than 50, 60, 70 percent of Americans live in suburbs? You're right in that it is kind of a, a little bit of a you know, challenge kind of defining exactly what counts as a suburb. But generally speaking, more than half of Americans now live in suburbia. And we are a fundamentally suburban nation, partly by virtue of population and land use but partly by virtue of our sense of where the good life is. The aspirational um, ideals that we have are very tied up in suburbia. And that's part of why this reckoning and faltering that's at hand now is, is so significant and potentially so problematic because it's not just any land use pattern that uh, you know, we happen to have and letting go. It's a land use pattern and a development pattern, educational pattern, social mobility pattern that has been very baked into our national mythology for almost 100 years now. I want to get to the education element uh, after the break, also uh, the legal side of things. But in the Bay Area where I live, I mean, there are places like Palo Alto, which are enormously wealthy suburbs, probably the wealthiest suburb or amongst the wealthiest suburbs in America. Berkeley's the same. And there are some very poor suburbs in the Bay Area and very poor neighborhoods outside the Bay Area. Is it a useful term or is it so broad that it actually becomes meaningless? There's a as an upper class suburb and a lower class suburb. And it strikes me that you're really writing about the lower class suburb. Well, I think part of the challenge that we have in confronting the problems is that we're not able to accurately see them because we have these illusions and myths about suburbia that we hold on to so tightly that it's one type of place populated by one type of family or one type of person. You know, in reality, suburbs have always been lots of different things. And there've been suburbs that were, uh, you know, uh, built in predominantly for, for different racial and ethnic groups. Um, and there's been suburbs that were smaller and larger and developed in different time periods. So it's always had this kind of the, the, this kind of melange of different types of suburban communities. But that mythology around the single family home with the white picket fence and the you know, walk to school is very strong in the popular imagination. And I think that's really preventing us from seeing the, what we actually experience every day around us. Well, Benjamin Harold is showing us what we don't see, his new book. Uh, it's out today. It's a major new book. Already got great review in the New York Times and elsewhere. Disillusioned Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. I want to thank uh, my friends at Liberty for bringing us such high-quality guests as uh, Benjamin Harold. Uh, it's a quarterly journal of culture and politics 
Everyone who comes on the show will get a complimentary annual subscription, including Benjamin Herald. We're going to run a short feature. And then we'll be back with Ben to talk more about schools and other elements in the declining infrastructure of American suburbs. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in about 34 and a half seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Benjamin Harold, the author of Disillusioned, a new book, a comparative study of five families, five different suburbs in America, all one way or the other disillusioned. Uh, ben, you come to this as an education journalist. Uh, and when one thinks about the ideal suburb, 50 years ago in America, perhaps the central institution is the school, the sports field, the teacher, the relationship between the kids, uh, all the celebrations around school. Is the change in schooling, is that the heart of this unraveling of America's suburb? And is this how you got to this story? Well, I think you're right in that schools are very, public schools are very central to uh, suburbia writ large. And so part of why I wanted to focus on families' experiences with schools is because for two reasons. First, the changes that we see in local populations show up in schools first because that's where the young people are. So the demographic changes that are really driving a lot of these tensions and kind of the exposure of these fissures within suburbia, we see them first in schools. Um, and that's why you know all of these conflicts and battles that we've seen at suburban school board meetings We've tended to kind of think of them as kind of a one-off what's happening in this community, but I actually have come to believe they're, they're kind of skirmishes in this kind of larger conflict. And then I think secondly, schools become really important because they're the locus of this idea of how do we deliver our kids to a better life? Schools are really central to that. And so when parents, particularly parents of color, move into suburbia, expecting that they're gonna get this ladder to opportunity and instead find communities where their children are policed very adamantly, where there's unfair discipline, where it's very challenging to get your child into the, you know, into the gifted program or advanced placement courses, where there's this cultural mismatch that you're kind of constantly dealing with. All of those things really undermine um, not only the, the dream of suburbia, but the mechanisms by which suburbia is supposed to deliver that dream. So are the schools the cause or the effect of all this? And what's gone wrong in the schools? I mean, schools were never of course, ideal. But is the problem money, the lack of funding for schools, the bad pay for teachers, the bad quality of some of the personnel, the bureaucratization of the system? Where do we begin here? I think the first question, um, particularly when we're talking about suburban public schools, um, is who were these systems built for and who were they built to exclude? And we see that legacy of racial exclusion in suburban public schools living on now. So at one point in time, that was very explicit. There were many communities, including those featured in the book, that actively resisted desegregation for years after Brown versus Board of Education. Um, or that, in some cases, um, kind of built up as a, an escape hatch for um, white families living in cities who did not want it, their children to attend integrated schools. So this idea of suburban public schools being for one type of family 
while excluding other type of families is often really baked into how they operate. And you would see that in things like their discipline policies, the curriculum, the kind of habits by which teachers interact with parents and their expectations of what counts as, a, as an involved family. All of these things kind of accumulate. And so, um, you know, I think so, schools are definitely implicated in the problem. And then that becomes even trickier because we place a lot of burden and onus on schools to fix the problems as well. And they're often very poorly equipped to do that. So schools end up as this kind of battlefield where a lot of these issues play out. Yeah, I agree with you on the schools. Uh, I wrote a book recently called How to Fix the Future. And I joke mm -hmm. that um, when nobody knows how to fix the future, most of us, of course, don't. They always fall back on schools and education and say, oh, well, we'll just have to do it in the schools. And of course, that's really, in truth, uh, a waving of the of the white flag. One has no idea. But coming back to the issue of race and the decline of schools, as you know, some of the families you covered who are just as vulnerable to this decline are white. Um, and we're seeing the rise of white rage politically, culturally. Why is this all about race since it affects both whites and blacks and every other skin color in America these days? Well, I think um, it affects people from different groups in different ways at a sociological level. Um, and what we see, you know, over and over again with this pattern of kind of this kind of Ponzi scheme pattern of we're going to build up this community and extract all the benefits, but we're not going to pay full cost for those during the first few generations. We'll push those costs off onto future generations and we'll move away before the bill comes due. That historically at a sociological level has been a very racialized dynamic with white families getting the opportunities and leaving before the bills come due. Families of color fighting to get into suburbia only to realize they're stuck with the tab for all, you know, all the opportunities that other families have already extracted. And so that dynamic is kind of baked into a lot of suburban development and to the way schools factor into that development. So, yeah, race is definitely central to this. But that doesn't mean that um, one group is happy with suburbia now and others aren't. I think what I'm seeing is that, you know, from across the spectrum, um, families are starting to say, hey, whatever the dream was that brought me here to suburbia, it's not working anymore. It seems to be a kind of a deterministic element of your argument. Do you, are you suggesting that whites collectively somehow knew that they were that they were putting off the payment of their bills so that ultimately they wouldn't have to pay and people of different skins is there a consciousness here to it or is it just accidental what I saw in a lot of the communities that I featured in the book, including my old hometown, is that there starts to be this period where there's almost like this ambient urgency that starts to permeate a town, um, a suburban town. And often that is partly about demographic change. It's partly about aging infrastructure, like in Penn Hills, Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh, we saw was, you know, this massive problems with the sewer system that were put off for years and years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, um, it kind of breaks out into the open and now there's a $60 million consent decree and people see their sewage bills go up and they don't want to pay those. And so, you know, those kinds of things start to accumulate and then accelerate. And so it's often not explicit in the way that families talk about the choices that they're making. And in a, on a micro level, the, the choices are often very rational. But when you aggregate those choices up to a sociological level, you start to see these bigger patterns of one group tending to get the benefits and not have to pay full freight. And uh, other groups not getting the full benefits, but having to pay extra regardless. As I said, your book got a nice review in the uh, in the New York Times, down and out in American suburbia. Thank you, George Orwell. 
uh, written by um, Ben Austin, who is actually another distinguished journalist covering some of the same themes. Uh, he was on the show. He talks about the American justice system in his recent book, Correction, Parole, Prison, and the Possibility of Change. Um, ben, has the criminal justice system also been suburbanized, so to speak? What I saw in my reporting was a real fear, particularly among parents of color, that there is what they call the school to prison pipeline in their in their communities and in their schools. And I'm thinking particularly of a middle class African-American family I got to know living in Gwinnett County outside Atlanta. So, again, they moved to a, a, you know, a new community uh, with new subdivision. They were on a cul-de-sac street, beautiful home, you know, both Parents have professional degrees, very involved in their kids' educations. Um, and so they kind of expected they were going to be able to kind of set it and forget it. You move in, you go to the local public schools and everything will be fine. But when their oldest son hit middle school, what they saw was this kind of alarming escalation in this kind of policing pattern of, uh, you know, he, their son would act up sometimes. Uh, sometimes it would be goofing around in class or tapping his pencil too loudly or, you know, roughhousing with his friends. But there was kind of a disproportionate response that started to grow and, um, you know, uh, kind of expand exponentially to the point where the, you know, the, the Robinsons, the parents, they really started to worry that, hey, wait, my child is being teed up to be sent out to a disciplinary school. And then say teed up. again, that sounds a little deterministic. Uh, is there a plot? I mean, do they believe or do you believe there's some sort of plot here that, that, yeah, that uh, they're uh, actually using your language being teed up to be because they're black to be sent to prison the very specific example that comes to mind is so there was kind of this um, series of incidents and detentions and write-ups and referrals and suspensions that eventually prompted a meeting with uh, the robinsons went up to the school um, and are meeting with their child's uh, teachers and the administrators at the school and um, the mother nika ends up feeling like she's getting ambushed she thought they were kind of coming in to talk about how do we work this out together to make sure that my son is held accountable for the minor infractions that he's made, but that his education is not derailed over these kind of relatively minor misbehaviors. And instead, it escalates very fast. And what she says, which I think was so powerful, is she kind of interrupts the conversations as it's happening. And she says, listen, I want you to understand that I know what you are doing. What you are doing is trying to document my child to death so that there's a paper trail that will allow you to put him out. And I know what you're doing because I do that myself in my work. I'm in management as well. So I, I see this, what's happening, and I'm not going to stand for it. And so I think that kind of pattern is fairly typical. Ben, is there a, a cultural contradiction here or socioeconomic contradiction at the heart of the decline, the crisis of suburbia, which was always a place for the American middle class and for better or worse, I'm not sure you can blame the suburbs on this. The American middle class is in crisis. You have a, an increasingly small, wealthy, powerful upper class and a lower class and a little, little in between. It's reflected in, in the economy. Six or seven American companies now controlled, I don't know, 25% of the economy. It's a winner-take-all world, a winner-take-all economy, a winner-take-all society, a winner-take-all America. And suburbia is the the victim of this so that suburbs which were once these vehicles of equality have now for better or worse becomes vehicles of inequality well, i think they were um his, his suburbs have historically been vehicles for equality for some but not for all and so we have to remember that and, and be true to that 
But to your larger point about, you know, kind of the class dimensions of this, I think that's very, you know, central to what's happening. Because historically, again, what you would see that the pattern that we've seen over and over again across America is that as the demographic changes start to really accelerate and as these infrastructure challenges start to proliferate, there's always kind of been an escape hatch for, for a large critical mass of middle-class white families. They can just move out to the next community one ring further out from downtown and restart the cycle over, over new. Um, but that is increasingly not an option for, for a large number of families. Like it's the price of entry into the communities that are really separating themselves from demographic change and infrastructure challenges. Like that price of entry is really, really high and beyond the means of a lot of families who once would have enjoyed that. So now those families, instead of just kind of running away from the problem, are stuck in place and having to confront it. And I think that's part of why so many of these conflicts and tensions are breaking out into the open now. What about the politics of all this? As we speak, I don't need to tell you or our audience, Americans are voting in New Hampshire, first Republican primary. It's likely that Trump will be anointed, uh, for better or worse. Uh, Politico ran an interesting piece at the weekend about a, a middle-class man called Ted Johnson in New Hampshire who believes that the American system needs to essentially be blown up. He's a big Donald Trump fan. He had flirted with Haley, but now believes that Trump is America's savior. How is this manifesting itself politically, both amongst people of color and also whites? And, and, and is it the same phenomenon or is it different? I think a lot of the dynamics we see at a national level, like in the presidential races, for example, we also see start to bubble up at a local level and often around school politics first. And so I paid a lot of attention to mm. school boards. And what you would see was this kind of same tension and dynamic first between uh, right and left, where you would have um, older white school board members who had kind of controlled the institution for decades, if not longer, and kind of now had this sense of, hey, someone's coming in and trying to change this thing that we built and, and like take it away from us and really reacting very strongly against that. So see, that dynamic happened. But also, in, even in more liberal suburbs, what we see is that, you know, some of the tensions on the left really playing out on a local level as well. I'm thinking about Evanston, Illinois, for example, where, you know, it's a it's a progressive, uh, affluent college town north of Chicago. And I really went there thinking this was a place where, OK, they've kind of like taken this really progressive stance to address these issues. And maybe there's some lessons to learn there. But what I ended up seeing was this really, really um, dramatic schism between the, the kind of older and whiter liberal um, faction of the community and the younger, more progressive uh, people of color. Um, in the community. And it really kind of centered around the school board. And so once the younger progressives of color really took over the school board and made racial equity the center of the district's mission and vision and their reform goals, you know, you saw this big backlash and a really rough fight there too. So I don't think it's, um, it's certainly not unique to either side. And within each side, the, the dynamics are very uh, complicated as well. So it's a a re-spinning, a remixing of, of Tip O'Neill's famous comment about all politics being local, not so much at the, the, the state level or the local uh, level, but go to your local school board and see how passionate, angry, and potentially even violent people are. So, Ben, what can be done here? Uh, I'm guessing that for you, this isn't inevitable, that uh, the suburbs are not the places where the American dream has come to die, and that's the end of everything. What 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 can be improved? What 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 would you suggest as a way out of this crisis? I think the first thing is being honest about where we are. 
And that involves shedding some of our own illusions about what counts as a suburb and how suburbs operate and the, the situations that suburbs find themselves in. So um, hopefully what I want people to do, you know, after reading Disillusioned would be to, you know, walk or drive around your neighborhoods and communities and actually be able to see and understand what's happening in a different way, um, in a more complicated and more nuanced way so that we have an accurate picture of this kind of cycle of development and decline that's happening in suburbia, you know, across the country. Is that real? I mean, I, I, I take your point and it would be nice if that happened, but that's not very realistic, is it? I think it is. Um, and I've seen already, you know, talking with families and folks who have started reading the book, this sense of like, oh, wait, I never knew why my community was celebrating its past so much, even as people now were struggling. Or I never understood why um, the community next door um, had all these economic troubles, but mine does not. Or why my community is having the economic troubles and so many people are leaving now. Why did I see so many for sale signs around my neighborhood? So I do think people, we you know, we see the indicators and signs of it, but we haven't had this kind of larger um, connect the dots narrative to help us make sense of it. So I think that being honest is uh, about where we are is part of it. And then the second is it's really about reimagining that suburban dream that, that built post-war suburbia in the first place. You know, and at its core, part of what that dream was predicated on was a massive investment in the nation's children, uh, which is a wonderful thing. Um, the problem was that that investment was by and large limited to only some children, predominantly white, upperly mobile, middle-class children. And that, you know, we're seeing the fruits of that um, exclusion now. And so if we're to reimagine that, you know, I think I looked at a place like Compton, California, which ended up being a very surprising model where the student body there is now almost entirely black and brown. But what we see in the school system is this top to bottom commitment to say we are going to extend not only resources, but opportunities to imagine yourself shaping America's future to some of the kids who suburbia was originally designed to exclude. So you're calling for a, a new local deal in America? I think any kind of massive investment that we make needs to be more inclusive if it's going to stand up to the challenges that we face. But that's not very realistic, is it? I mean, Biden's a centrist. He seems at least at this point that he's likely to lose the next election to, to Trump, who will reverse everything that Biden's done. Are, are, you, are there any alternatives to traditional New Deal, government, central, federal investment? What about technology, for example? I think we've seen at a local level, um, communities taking some of these matters into their own hands, you know, um, experimenting with universal basic income programs being an example. Mm. Those are often small scale, but you sometimes are seeing that energy and those strategies and innovations uh, percolate up. But, you know, and I think at the federal level, you know, certainly I, you know, I would not disagree with you in the least that um, if uh, Mr. Trump was reelected president, that that would not be his agenda. But I think we often kind of have missed what um, has been done that kind of gives us a glimpse of the possibilities. And I'm thinking of the COVID relief packages that um, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration were responsible for passing. And those included tens and tens of billions of dollars for public schools that allowed systems like Compton and Penn Hills, where I grew up, to start addressing some of these infrastructure challenges and broadening and extending their services to more kids. So we do have examples of that from the federal government and at a local level. We just haven't been calling attention to them and having a national conversation about, are we really ready to do this in a big way? Finally, Benjamin, um, is there a role for philanthropy here for the wealthy? We had Susan Danziger on the show a couple of weeks ago, an old friend of mine from New York. She's uh, she's a comfortable person economically, and she's been 
investing in all sorts of things in Hudson, up, uh, uh, upstate New York. Uh, are there ways that the Danzigers, the Gates, maybe even the Zuckerbergs and the Musks can redistribute their absurd wealth to America to begin to address what you've uncovered in dissolution? One of the things that was so striking to me when I traveled the country and spent time in these five communities was how many groups were already on the ground trying to figure this out and not getting any attention and having trouble getting resources. And I'm thinking about you know parent advocacy groups that were really trying to address discipline for reform, about fair housing groups in suburbia and so forth. And so you know, in th thinking about philanthropy, I, I, you know, I would look at it, someone like a Mackenzie Scott who has said, okay, mm. who are the folks who are already doing this work and have a track record and have a vision that fits into this larger picture and how do we support them? I think that's a, the type of approach that's most likely to, to yield results in suburbia.